0: Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. Today we're doing something we haven't done in a while. We're having something akin to a roundtable discussion uh, among the CGR staff to talk about stories we'll be keeping an eye on in the new year. If you subscribe to our daily newsletter, and you should, you might know that some of the stories and names you're about to hear come from people whose bylines you read all the time. John Alsop, who leads our newsletter, is back. a hiatus he took at the end of last year and as one of this year's introductory newsletters he asked everyone at cgr to think and write about which stories they'll be paying attention to in 2023 so we're going to talk about that we got a a lot of answers all of them super interesting important which you'll hear about in just a minute but first i'm gonna have a little chat with john about what it's like to return to writing and being immersed in the news after stepping away for several months. What does that feel like? What does that look like? What stories he's gonna be looking at in the coming months? And also, what he thinks about Twitter because when he left, Twitter was still in its old iteration pre-Elon Musk. During his absence, Musk came in, Twitter kind of imploded and now he's back and I was really curious what that looks like to John. I'm talking to John from London where he's based. John, welcome back.
1: Uh, Thank you, it's great to be back.
0: So for those of you who didn't follow this, John went on a well-deserved hiatus uh, for a few months to just take a break from the news. Um, what's that like? What did you What did you do and what's it like being unplugged?
1: Well, firstly, I find it very hard to believe that there is anyone out there who wasn't following my two months off work. Um, so I don't know if this is redundant for people. Um, no, it was it was. First of all, it was it was a great privilege to be able to take some time to step out of the news cycle and step away from work. After four years of writing CJR's daily newsletter, almost every weekday, I was just completely fried, essentially. So, yeah, I needed to take some time to do a bit of nothing, do a bit of traveling. Um, but, yeah, as part of that, I did, as you say, disconnect myself from the news mainframe almost completely. My attitude was basically if something was important enough to warrant a New York Times push notification or funny enough that a friend of mine would send me like a meme about it, then it would breach my consciousness, as it were. But um, anything else, I wasn't checking Twitter, wasn't listening to or watching news shows. I wasn't even really uh, reading email newsletters, certainly not kind of aggregated news newsletters.
0: Yeah. Also, your, your departure had a kind of like Rip Van Winkle feel because when you left... Um, it was pre- musk right musk hadn't bought Twitter right
1: no well it was it was immediately before he yeah. finalized his acquisition so it.
0: so musk hadn't bought it there was a lot of talk around it and and Twitter was hadn't sort of imploded the way it has since what is that because Twitter being the main place that a lot of journalists hang out and talk about stuff and also like showcase their work what is it how does it look different? during this period of your absence now coming back?
1: Um, so yeah, that was another thing that I did was that I did not, I actually deleted the Twitter app off my phone for my entire time off. So I did not touch Twitter um, at all. And coming back has kind of felt like coming back to a ghost town. And this isn't like a super scientific thing to say or anything, because I definitely all I really do is post my CJR articles on Twitter. I don't tweet much beyond that. Uh, and never have but some of them would do i mean fairly often they would do quite well on twitter or generate you know a bit of conversation and i found so far again it's a small sample size but after one week back that feels like it's pretty much gone um the voices that i had kind of trained i guess my algorithm to serve me who were people whose views on the news i wanted to see either aren't tweeting so much anymore at all or seem to have been like weeded out of the stuff that i see like everything i see is basically useless i have to go looking for the people who used to just pop up in my feed Again, I don't know you know, to what extent I was absent for a couple of months versus to what extent the algorithm has changed versus to what extent people have concluded that Twitter is a cesspool and they're off to Mastodon or, or whatever else. But, yeah, it definitely feels ghost-towny. It definitely feels different. And, yeah, it's a bit strange, I guess.
0: And so um, I'm sort of getting ahead of myself. I mean, we we you did this uh, newsletter this week for CJR on what you and – the members of the staff including me were, were what were the sort of stories that they were looking towards for this new year and and one, and one thing that i talked about was like how are people going to get how, how are they going to get attention to their work how are they going to have a conversation around their work how are they just going to get people to know they've done stuff with twitter now being such a reduced presence. And it's it's relevant for CJR because we, like everybody else, use Twitter, although probably less than a lot of people. But everybody's got this issue, especially if you're like a startup digital newsroom. What do you where do you see that going? What's the answer to that?
1: Well to speak to our experience at CJR a little bit, I think that I personally in terms of tweeting out the newsletter that I write for CJR, have only done that as like a secondary thing um obviously the primary mode of distribution for that given that it's a newsletter has been to our email list of subscribers which is pretty healthy and we have a good open rate so and it does seem like a lot of publishers are kind of saying that's actually you know remains rather than the fad maybe some people thought it was a really good way to to reach people getting directly into their inbox um especially given that these um otherwise kind of centralized platforms um, like Twitter seem to be referring less traffic than they they used to. So I think that, yeah, newsletters is definitely part of the answer. And I feel like we're sort of in a good place with that. I I guess the other challenge for us, or certainly for me, is that while I certainly agree with the critics who say that journalists maybe spend too much time on Twitter on the whole and can kind of get disconnected to people who aren't on Twitter and, and the real world, for people who study and follow the media, Twitter is... Has been a really like interesting way to follow what other journalists are saying and what other journalists are thinking, almost in real time, which is which is kind of an insight, I guess, that was not really available before. And I guess losing that is also kind of part of the the consideration for a publication like us. But in terms of distributing and getting stuff out, I think, I mean, Matthew Ingram wrote about this in his tech newsletter for CJR this week, and I think he will be on the podcast uh, imminently, uh, if I if I understand correctly. But he he basically was rounding up some voices who were saying that this whole twitter debacle just goes to show that you should not rely on one kind of billionaire owned central distribution mechanism as a, as a serious means of getting your work out and again i think as you said we we haven't relied on it but maybe there are some news organizations that have too much and when, when that gets taken over by a capricious child then you kind of lose the the reliability that came with that so maybe it is a, you know i think at the without necessarily knowing what the answer is, I certainly think it's a good reminder that distribution mechanisms that we've come to rely on don't last forever. And maybe the same is true of of, of newsletters. And even though they've, I think, proved pretty, pretty robust up to now, I think it's just this thing we have to constantly think about, about diversifying the ways in which you reach an audience, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, newsrooms have been burned so many times. Remember the pivot to video? I do. I mean, they've been burned so many times by like following what, uh, tech companies or even algorithms are telling them what to do. And in the meantime, completely surrendering their relationship with their audience to somebody else, which seems insane. You know, every and every time this happens, it happened. You remember for a while it was Facebook that drove a lot of traffic for people, and then that stopped. And then it was video that drove traffic, and that stopped. And then it was uh, Twitter for a while did drive good traffic for a lot of people, and then that stopped. And at some point, these newsrooms have to say, like, yeah, we're, this isn't working, and this stuff is very capricious. Mm. So I want to talk about the plan for the CGR newsletters in a second, but the other story that sort of happened while you were away was this um, was the was the midterms and then the sort of response to that in terms of the Republican chaos um, in terms of naming a speaker. And I'm just curious whether and I don't want to exaggerate your absence too much it's not like you died but but <laughs> you were you were away and and when you're doing this newsletter you really intensely focus on what's going on D- does is the tenor of of what's going on in national politics when you came back were you surprised at the kind of like the how bitter it is i mean now there's this like there's this kind of new mccarthyism around the speaker whose name is mccarthy but it, it recalls the old mccarthyism where they're going to go after everything they're going to do these kind of like witch hunts of the irs hunter biden now uh joe biden's documents and everything um anyway has it, was that what is your take on that or were you surprised by how it sort of evolved
1: um am i am i surprised that congress is bitter no uh, not at all <laughs> um, i don't think that represents too much of a change i think i think i was actually gonna say earlier um that one of the things that i really noticed about unplugging myself from the news for such a long period of time was how trivial so much of it felt coming back and kind of looking back at what i'd missed like i spent a couple of days towards the very end of the Christmas break while I had terrible flu, going back through sort of old email newsletters and, and just making sure that there was nothing like really seismic that had happened while I was off that had escaped my attention. Um, and obviously there's always important stuff going on, but so much of the discourse around the midterms and then the aftermath of that and like would McCarthy be able to nail down the speakership, it just seemed to drive the political news cycle for weeks and weeks and weeks and it didn't hugely actually, I guess change anything necessarily and I sort of came back actually thinking I thought I would feel this great kind of chasm or void separating you know me when I was last really following the news in October and me now in January and actually it felt like I didn't miss too much which I I guess is partially about having perspective when you're not sort of dwelling in the news and trying to really isolate what's important every single day, you, I think, maybe get a better perspective on on what actually matters. But I think it also speaks to something that you were saying about the, the sort of specific tenor of the news cycle, which is, I guess, the fact that actually we're, we're kind of where we expected to be now, right? Like, all of the discourse heading into the midterms in kind of mainstream political media and on cable news was there's going to be a red wave, this is going to be terrible for Biden, the Republicans are going to take Congress. And that obviously didn't quite happen. It was, the House was a lot closer than expected. Obviously, the Democrats made gains in in the Senate. But obviously, because of the way American government works, you only have to lose one of the two houses to have your agenda um, pretty stuffed up. And and, and and certainly when that when the chamber that you've lost is the is House of Representatives led by Kevin McCarthy and his Republican caucus, you know, well over 100 of whom voted to try and stop Biden from getting into the White House even after he'd fairly won it. So, like, even though the actual kind of outcome of the election on a vote-by-vote basis was not what all the pundits were chattering about and expecting, when you boil it right down. Like the thing everyone thought that would happen, that would be the most politically consequential thing about this moment. You know, Republicans would take the house and would use it to do a bunch of um, inquiries targeting the Biden administration. I mean, that is happening. Um, and the size of their majority, as we saw with with the speaker vote, is going to be consequential. The fact they didn't absolutely smash it is going to give them less leeway to do some of this stuff, I would expect. Um, one, one sort of media criticism nugget that I've noticed, I think, uh, in this first couple of weeks back after Christmas is that a lot of the focus especially during the speaker race was understandably on this kind of renegade right-wing really well really really right-wing kind of extremist caucus who tried to stop McCarthy becoming speaker there are actually given how thin their majority is probably other members who are going to be difficult at the you know more towards the I don't want to say centrist but more towards the center of the spectrum when it comes to you know playing chicken on the debt limit and and cutting military spending so I, I don't think it's going to be completely as driven by the the absolute kind of lunatic fringe as as maybe some pundits are expecting. But I think the dynamic is is roughly, if you'd ask me in October to predict the dynamic coming back, is kind of, you know, McCarthy is speaker, these investigations are ramping up, and it's going to be a big test for the media to see how they deal with that. I think it's probably too early to draw any sweeping conclusions, but it's altered clearly the political landscape and, and therefore is altering you know the coverage of the outlets that seem to see their only job as covering the, the contours of the political landscape already.
0: So w- when when we framed this uh, newsletter this week about like what what stories are you going to be watching for uh, the year, the thing that you focused on is how the media is going to cover threats to democracy, um, which sort of is in line with what we were just talking about, right? Um, but but how do you, how what do you mean by that?
1: Well, I think that um after particularly after january sixth um and you know all of the other mechanics around the way that Trump tried to overturn the last election, major news organizations that had previously been complacent about or not paid a ton of attention to the idea that American democracy was just at a fundamental level in real real trouble, like existential trouble. I think you started to see those players wake up. You started to see more major news organizations devote more resources to covering, you know, the Arizona Secretary of State race, um, or, or, you know, kind of local vote counting teams, stories that would have been way under the radar of, I think, the the kind of top lines of the national news cycle before. Um, Because I think there was this understanding that, you know, the the Trump and, and very right wing Republican people are trying to engineer a sort of nationwide architecture of election denialism that has real concrete power over American elections. And those people, obviously, by and large, were on the ballot in November. And in the end, by and large, they they lost. I don't want to say that's because the media paid attention to the story and raised the alarm about it in isolation. I think that, you know, coverage of democracy, as we saw it last year going into the midterms, you know, at major outlets still had a long way to go to be urgent enough. But, but generally speaking, I think it was better than most media critics, myself included, may have feared kind of coming out of January sixth. I think I think there was kind of a a greater awareness of the the kind of very granular threats. Um, this this I should just briefly say. In addition to um, you know specialist kind of election reporters who've always been covering this stuff, I, I'm kind of talking at like the top lines of the news cycle. Um, but I guess what I'm what I'm looking for now is to see how that's sustained. Because as I said, the the real the people who were really threatening to just throw the votes out next time if they didn't go the way they wanted did not win the governorships and the secretary of state races in those kind of key swing states, um, which which might be in play next time. A, a, a natural reaction to that, if you're the mainstream kind of top line major media, and you have a limited amount of resources to cover politics might be to say, oh, well, there was this threat to democracy, but these people didn't win, so it's over. Uh, and I think that is really complacent. And I also think secondarily that it would be a wasted opportunity to think like that because threats to American democracy, as I wrote in this, in this newsletter this week, are not just about election denialism. It's not just about that fundamental level of overthrowing elections. It is stuff that's just much more fundamental that I think many Americans have come to just accept about routine dysfunction in their government. Like the health of democracy is, is a spectrum. It's not just existential threats and then kind of everything is fine and normal. And I guess what I'll be watching um, is to see how, yeah, again, major news organizations that have big resources and have the opportunity to kind of corral attention at the national level. I want to see if they continue to focus on the health of American democracy, both in that existential, but also in those kind of other areas of dysfunction. Um, I want to see if they continue to pay attention to it or if they say, well, you know, danger over crisis averted. I think, I think Ed Young, um, the great Atlantic writer on on health and science likes to say during the pandemic that an averted disaster is like not the same as a a clean bill of health or an overreaction you know people actually have to do things to stop bad things from happening and yeah i don't think the midterm results signal a completely clean bill of health even for those kind of fundamental existential threats to american democracy i don't think they've gone away and i think yeah i want to see if major news organizations that were starting to pay those things more attention continue or, or kind of decide to to give up
0: yeah um, I don't want to turn this into like a total commercial, but um, we have launched a new slate of CGR newsletters. Walk us through very quickly, like what that looks like.
1: So previously, the media today, our weekday newsletter was anchored by me four days a week and Matthew Ingram, who I mentioned previously, who would write about tech on Thursdays. And um, and we're still going to be doing all of that. But we've kind of structured it a bit differently going into this year, where each day of the week will have a kind of given theme it is as you mentioned kind of a slate of newsletters rather than just one newsletter that comes out every day so uh, on Mondays I'm going to continue to write about political journalism you know coverage of the the national political scene Um, on Tuesdays I have a new reported newsletter uh, which I'm doing once a week which is on kind of on the intersection of what people are talking about in the American media sphere and what's going on in the media sphere in other countries around the world. Doing the previous iteration of the newsletter, I would so often notice that some sort of faddish conversation in the American media industry would be something that had a parallel or a precedent or kind of a curious echo, somewhere completely different that, that most American journalists maybe don't pay attention to. So I'm going to try and tell those stories in that, in that space on Tuesdays. Um, on Wednesdays, we're going to have a Q&A every week. On Thursdays, Matthew will continue to write about tech. And on Fridays, we have uh, this up-and-coming writer called Kyle Pope. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's not not too big a deal within the industry, but we're hoping to promote his work to to a wider audience. Um, he'll be writing a, a reflection on a big story of the week and uh, using it to link out to uh, a piece from CJR's archives, which tackles a similar a similar theme. So that's the lineup. Please, um, go to our website to sign up. If you haven't already, I'm feeling pretty excited about it.
0: Me too. So good to have you back.
1: Great to be back.
0: So as John mentioned, we ran a newsletter this week asking, uh, people on the CJR staff, what they're going to be looking for um, over the next year. we got some super interesting and insightful thoughts, and I wanted to talk about that. I'm going to start with Pesha, who is one of our CJR fellows. You're really looking at what you you describe this as moral panics on the part of the press around gender and sexuality. Talk to me about what you mean by that and how that how you think that could play out.
2: Sure. I mean, I think that this is something that's been happening for a long time. moral panics are, you know, articles and stories and language that make people feel afraid that, you know, like the gays are coming for their children, that they're going to, you know, be pushing a homosexual agenda that's going to somehow magically convert all children to being queer people and what a terrible thing that would be. So I think that that is very rampant in the US press last year, but not just in US press, beyond it, and I think it's also something that you know we've seen right politicians very cynically manipulating to try to get people to you know be afraid that there is some sort of scary other force coming after their communities so that they'll you know be riled up and 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 uh, you know vote for more right-wing parties based around this kind of idea which is a false idea obviously that gender and sexuality are a fundamental threat to their way of life to their children's safety.
0: How how have you seen the press approach this? Like, how do they cover it? Um, How should they be doing it differently?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it depends on the type of press that we're talking about, but the kind of depressing thing is that you see a lot of similar trends, whether it be kind of more technically liberal media or more right-wing media. You know, a lot of times I think there's like a hyper-focus around what should be basic human issues like whether or not trans kids can use you know the bathroom that's appropriate to their gender or whether uh you know they can participate in sports that get hyper hyper focused on as a way to stir up you know this fear and this panic and i think this happens in you know articles that are in right-wing media but it also like sadly happens you know in more mainstream news outlets like the New York Times, which has like published several articles about trans kids, where they're you know citing sources that are transphobic and treating as if they were normal sources, without giving the proper context to that. And then I think on a like more global level, I mean you see this in press across the world. Like I did a lot of work on this when I was living in Egypt, and you know they're the the big papers would publish like these big splashy articles talking about how they were going after debauchery to protect the family. And you would just see a lot of like similar rhetoric being used as a way to kind of frame the people in authority or the people in power as, you know, kind of moral guardians of the society or the state.
0: Yeah. And it seems like the press plays into it in that they let the pe- these people say outrageous things and then just sort of Go to other people and say, "What do you think about that?" It also reminds me of of the of the debate in the conversation around critical race theory and and school and race. The, these ideas have been completely twisted around, and so for media to sort of take them at face value and create this kind of fake battle just seems. Um, it seems ill-advised.
2: It's ill-advised, and like I think it ver- it's also like irresponsible, right? Like it, it also reminds me a little bit of the pseudo debates that were going around around climate change, where both sides were emphasized more than actually getting the truth out there, right? When I think it's yeah. when you are citing, you know, a group that is outright transphobic, you need to make that clear. If you're going to put them in your article, I think there needs to be context to make sure that, you know, the reader knows that's who they are.
0: Yeah. So now turning to Matthew. Um, Matthew, you wrote about your interest in crypto, which, as you know, is something I am not interested <laughs> in. <laughs> um, um, uh, the decline of Twitter mm-hmm. and um, t- the the last part of what you're what you focused on is really interesting to me, which is the waning ad power of Google and Meta, and I also think the waning influence in the worlds of journalism of Google and Meta. So talk a little bit about that.
3: In in a lot of ways, um, we could throw Twitter in there too. All three of them are sort of becoming kind of simultaneously less important to journalism and certainly in the case of Facebook, less interested in journalism. So Facebook, I think, you know, maybe saying it pretended to care is overstating it but but kind of gave the impression that it cared about journalism for a variety of reasons and you know paid a bunch of money to a variety of places and set up all kinds of tools and they've basically been dismantling that whole structure and they've said look we you know journalism's great but we have to focus on our core business and no one no one clicks on media links anyways and the advertising part, I think, is, is arguably even more important, although it's not as obvious. But these are two gigantic companies that uh, controlled the majority of digital advertising until recently. Now, there's a couple of things going on there. Influence is waning. Amazon's is increasing. And I think we're, we're seeing a kind of shakeup in the digital advertising market. And of course, that affects online media quite a bit as well. I talked to John about
0: you know how how this could finally be the wake-up call that um, has been so needed in terms of you know uh, newsrooms relying on tech companies to be the conduit to their audience, um, and new and and the tech companies sort of dictating content like how everybody was trying to game Facebook because that's where a lot of the audience was, and then everybody was trying to game Twitter because that's where the, a lot of the audience was, and both of those. Platforms finally said, you know, we don't care about news, go away. And people, newsrooms died as a result. I mean, people had to shut down. So at some point, like, you just think that, like, these
3: outlets need to say, like, we we can't keep doing this. I, get, I think this is like the fourth or fifth wake-up call, uh, depending on how you count. But um, But as you mentioned, online media, digital media, you have to find your audience somehow. You have to... Connect with them somehow and not everyone is going to go to your website. Yeah. Especially if it's terrible and full of ads and, and it takes forever to find the content. So then how do you do that? So Twitter was one way, Facebook was one way. What do we do now? Like are we gonna create dances about our stories on TikTok and hope that people come to our website? I mean I, I honestly don't know. That's on you. I'm not I'm not, <laughs> I'm not
0: on that game. Um, I mean, this all reminds me of—remember when you and I went to—what was it, Denver? Yeah. And there was something that Facebook had put on where they were trying to, like, court uh, newsrooms. And there was all these, like, little newsrooms there trying to, like, get Facebook's attention. And even at the time, even at the time, you and I were like, yeah, this seems kind of gross. And, like, I don't we don't <laughs> know where it's going to go. Uh, and sure enough, it they, they pulled the plug on the whole thing.
3: Yeah, and I think, you know, the— the main reason those things happen. And the main reason I think people devoted so much time to Google's news initiative and Facebook's news project or journalism project is that they have a ton of money and lots of media companies don't. And so, you know, you kind of try and uh, cozy up to the people with the cash. Yeah. Uh, All
0: right, thank you. I'm I'm gonna turn now to Amanda. Amanda, you're really interested in how the press covers vulnerable people and vulnerable bodies of people, literally. Uh, talk, what what do you mean by this and like, how do you think about it?
4: Yeah, it's just this ongoing tension, you know, that I find totally fascinating. Um, and I think part of the problem is this perception that journalists can help or that we have some kind of power. This uh, creates a hazard where we can expose the most vulnerable and take advantage.
0: Yeah. Give us some some sort of subject areas we're talking about. We're talking about coverage of sexual assault, we're covering talking about coverage of abortion.
4: Well, look, I mean, it's going to it's going to be a big year um for stories around that kind of stuff. The New York Adult Survivors Act is in place until the end of November. So cases that have fallen outside the statute of limitations can now be litigated for this year. So there's gonna be a lot of important stuff to cover. I mean, the Epstein survivors have been trying to take legal action against Deutsche and JP Morgan. Um, and we're, we, the media is printing a bunch of stuff about the yoga classes that Glenn Maxwell is teaching in her jail down in Florida, you know?
0: And, and you even think about this um, as it extends to war coverage.
4: Yeah. I, I mean, do you remember that? We all spoke about that um, image from Lindsay Adario that The Times printed of the family that was killed in the shelling very early on in Ukraine, in Kiev, I believe.
0: The mom with the kids?
4: Yeah, the mom and the two kids. And yeah. Lindsay Adario spoke to the controversy around that. And she said, look, it, it's war crimes. like." the Russian troops are targeting civilians. We have to be made aware of that. It's important, you know, versus showing this mother and children, you know, their bodies lying in the street after they died. I mean, there's real tension there. There was a recent piece in the times with photographs by Laura um, Bushnak. Carlotta Gall wrote it. And it was about women who have survived sex crimes across Ukraine inflicted by Russian troops. And the photographs took a very different tone. It more showed their living conditions, the squalor that they had been forced to live in. Um, And to see those living conditions, it kind of filled in the negative space around the suffering and was very powerful in a different way. Uh, We saw their their healthcare providers who are looking after them now. Um, And we saw one or two of them, but turned away from the camera, you know, no one's face and it's a very different approach.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you all. I mean, this is, um, it's a great reminder of the breadth of what we do and what we're interested in at CJR. So thank you so much. Thank you. So a big thank you to John, Amanda, Matthew, and Pesha for joining me today. If you found John as great as we all at CGR do, please subscribe to our newsletter at cgr.org slash email. That link is in the show notes. Check it out. Also, one other programming reminder, CGR has a new podcast about grammar called Red Pen, which is both super interesting, super informative, and hilarious. If you could imagine a grammar podcast doing all those things. The latest episode is out, so you should check it out, Red Pen. You can find a link in the show notes or get it wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thanks for listening. See you next time.